0: This is an amalgamation of material from the book How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix The Complete series and material from the podcasts. Now, what are the ultimate implications of all these concepts and ideas? What is the end goal of glitching techniques? The answer is, 1. To produce a divergence of our expectation field from the common expectation field and 2. To produce a separation of the plates of meaning in an observable fashion. Reality is a fluid construction, a patchwork construction, comprised of the intersections of our five spatial plates and four plates of the mind with others. The manner by which this episode came to me was through a commonplace everyday experience that your average person would experience quite frequently in their daily life. In fact, this concept came to me while I was watching a friend play video games. It begins with a simple realization. Essentially, that realization is that our mind reacts with programmed responses to specific stimuli. What this means is that our minds act with pre-programmed emotional responses to stimuli in our environment, regardless of whether the environment is real or mere projection, i.e., video games. What this also means is that phantom stimuli, that is, stimuli which mirrors real stimuli in some basic way, can produce the same behavioral responses, whether we like it or know it or not. For example, let's say that you're watching someone play video games. And that someone you are watching is your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend. Now, in the video game, that person is interacting with an attractive computer-generated avatar. That avatar is mere artificial intelligence. Such an interaction will produce the same pre-programmed response as would an interaction with a real human being. That is, you will become jealous. Now, it is trite to say that, but that is only the beginning of the discussion. For what we see from this is that our impulses dissolve into the substance of anything we immerse ourselves in, from television, to virtual reality, to hobbies, to building Lego, to playing squash. But there are a few prerequisites for this to work. First of all, it requires the willing suspension of disbelief. Second, it requires the immersion of our attention into some substrate. Third, it requires releasing one's impulses naturally into the subject of one's attention. So these are the three prerequisites. What is the significance? When one allows one's attention to dissolve into anything in this fashion, the result is that fabricated stimuli become as real as the real thing as far as one's impulses and natural programming are concerned. In fact, The result of this dissolving of one's impulses into the subject of one's attention is the sublimation of one's impulses. In effect, identity becomes mutable and extends into the reality created by that suspension of disbelief, manifesting in a distinct and completely new way. So, what does this mean? It means that the suspension of disbelief, the immersion of one's attention into an object, renders our impulses subservient to its substance and that renders that object a new reality in and of itself. What do I mean by the word reality in this context? A reality created by the dissolution of one's impulses into the substance of an experience represents the transmutation of identity to a distinct plane. Which brings us back to the very beginning of our discussion of the nested nature of reality as set out in the early podcasts of Monologues. Each level of expressive language by any given person represents a distinct and nested reality because it represents a separate substrate through which one can acquire an immersive experience and suspension of disbelief. So, for example, if we imagine that two people are communicating, one is speaking, the other is listening. The attention of the listener can be fixed on the hand language of the speaker, the posture and posing, the facial expressions, the voice, or the location. Each level, Each plate represents a distinct level of meaning, which can draw the attention of the listener, and thereby dissolve the impulses of the listener. In this dissolution, the expressive language of the speaker becomes embraced by the anticipatory expectations of the listener, the intuitive projection of the listener. Now, unlike some substrate of experience which is inert, or even programmed, like a video game, the immersive experience represented by another individual's expressive language is different in a distinct way. How is it different? It is different because it is the projection of the speaker first, then and only thereafter, is it the intermingled projection of two individuals, a dynamic and fluid concoction, which might only be said to be a truly alive and fully nested reality. Now, to take a step back, I discussed in the book, How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix, how reality is shaped by our impulses, which reflect our expectations, thus, it becomes clear that in the dissolution of those impulses into a distinct medium for the expression of identity, we are literally seeing the creation of a new nested universe, a nested reality which has as much substance as the reality we exist in during our everyday ordinary lives. Now, when one witnesses multiplicity as an overlay of multiple narratives on a single visual field, it is possible to perceive that periodic movements associated with segmented gestures intermingle in multiple interwoven narratives. The expressed action, that is the base expression of the actor, is usually some mundane conversation, something contextual, suited for that particular moment in time, and the associations between those actors. But, the higher narratives will represent the actor's reactive thoughts, that is, their dialectical thoughts to a series of impulses which correspond to a time delay. For example, the second level, that is the one above the mundane, will be their reactions to your inner thoughts, your impulses of the last 16 hours. The next highest level of multiplicity will be those corresponding to the last 24 hours. The length of time associated with each level is approximated by the various cycles of bodily rhythm which is to say that the time delay associated with their reactive emotionality, their dialectical response to your non-consensuality, that is your unexpressed impulses, is created by each cycle of rhythm. And each level corresponds to an expressive action pursuant to a gesture or movement, segmented in time. According to the archetypes you select to act upon, those which reduce you to a predictable state, those you make part of your self-attributions, your stream of experience will follow a given consensuality. Which is to say, to the extent that archetype denotes inhibition of other impulses, those impulses will be appropriated. Now, whether they are appropriated by an alter in a conjoined consensuality or a dissonant one, depends upon whether you have shirked integration. For example, supposing that you remember spending the last six months in virtual isolation. Suppose, you made this choice to save money for a trip. That six months, will be in a dissonant consensuality to the extent that it represents a negation of many impulses. But if you have shirked integration, it will be in a conjoined consensuality, which means, that the reality that others will remember will accord with those inhibited impulses, expressed. In effect, you have been living a life of self-restraint in dissonance. In other words, Your choice to inhibit those impulses for a time was a fruitless one, in the sense that you lost the memories associated with all their expression to the appropriation of an altar. Now, in the episode before last, we talked about how generalizations work, they create dissonant consensualities for the other. But, if one absorbs oneself in experience which negates those generalizations, one can dissipate their non-contextual depersonalization. Finally we talked in the complete series about how the space around your body which allows you to impose a non-consensuality upon another, that is, within a non-consensual space, you can substitute and displace their impulses. What we neglected to mention is that for some this non-consensuality is a space of receptivity as opposed to one of the projection of intention. The projection of intention is associated with the tonic, a kind of penetrative space. The receptive space is associated with the dominant. In this episode, we will be talking about the arrangement of one's non-consensuality and its structure. Now, if we can draw any lesson from the ideas set out in this season, it is that our consensuality finds its limit when the authority of the state to impose a conjoined consensuality excludes it. But the manner of that exclusion produces a multiplicitous expression. That is to say, that at the limits of our consensuality, where it reaches the non-consensual action of the state, it possesses a many-tiered potentiality, a bifurcated set of layers, which entails the reactive emotionality of agents of the state to the delayed shadow parts of our being. Or, to put it another way, our minds generate reactive impulses to what is going on around us, which we suppress into our shadow self over time. These shadow impulses penetrate our consensuality, But find dialectical reaction in the non consensual action of the state, tiered according to the time delay since their inception within the mind. Let me give you an example. Suppose you are thinking about whether or not you support NATO's military alliance with Ukraine. Consciously, you maintain the position that Ukraine is justified in its self defense, which should be facilitated by NATO. This point is justified in your mind by the sheer audacity of Ukraine's resistance. Given that you believe in the principle of self-determination of peoples you think that it makes sense for NATO to assist Ukraine in the defense. But beneath the surface consensuality, let's say that you have some sympathy with some aspects of Russia's justification for the war, namely the fact that NATO has been expanding eastward towards Russian territory for decades. Suppose, you have some unconscious impulse toward a resolution, a suggestion, mere incipient, not fully thought out. But this thought or impulse invades your consciousness, at the edge of your perception. You repress it, because you agree with the defense of Ukraine. But a part of you clearly sees the need for a resolution. You go on about your day. Then, 16 hours later, you encounter an agent of the state. They express to you some contextual meaning. But part and parcel with this contextual meaning, is a higher level response to your thoughts about Ukraine. The nature of this response is fundamentally dialectical. That is, the author of them has assumed that you are fully in agreement with Russia, which you never consciously expressed. This manifestation or bifurcation of dual narratives represents the integration of your action over a period of some 24 hours in relation to impulses you didn't even know that you had, consciously. Suppose, additionally, you also thought in the past 36 hours about an up and coming piece of legislation. Again, these thoughts are not consciously held. But non consensually, you oppose the legislation. Again, the agent of the state manifests another bifurcation of their expression, another layer, wherein they dialectically assume you are against the legislation and enunciate why you are wrong. These layers, overlaid upon the expression of the agent of the state, represent their unconscious responses to your non consensual impulses. But they phrase the lower, somewhat perceptible meaning expressed contextually, and so on and so forth. Thus, all impulses which can generate reactive dialectical positions, supported by the authority of the polity, generate reactive emotionality which manifests in a way which is multilayered. Each expressive level corresponds to a time delay, manifesting according to the plate of the hands, posture, voice and face. If we are to understand this multi-tiered property of our expressive action, we must first accept that when we express contextual meaning, there is higher meaning expressed in the moment, which is more responsive to the internal impulses that others repress, but which find the dialectical opposite in our intentional action. But, the agents of the state, through their power to effectuate the conjoined consensuality possess the ability to undermine the joining of our non-consensuality with the conjoined space. In other words, what we view as the contextual determination of say a court, has more to do in its expression, with the higher integration or lack of integration of our non-consensual impulses. The structure of the event represents a manifold set of layers, each nested in the one above, shaping the contextual through the phrasing of the higher. In other words, if let's say you were to have a number of policy-dialectical non-consensual impulses immediately prior to intersecting with an arbiter of the state, you will find their contextual meaning tailored to their rebuke of your unconscious shadow self. In other words, judicial decisions are indeed biased, in the sense that every conjoining consensuality of the state is a referendum on your unconscious views. Even if you do not subscribe to these impulses consciously, they play a role in the decision-making of the state, because if the arbiter exceeds to your contextual response, they would be loosening those impulses within the state. So, in other words, your shadow self is the body of your non-consensuality, the primer, which either antagonistically, dialectically generates its opposition in the expression of the agents of the state, or it forms the bedrock of a conjoined space when those non-consensual impulses are reflected in the policy of the government. It is important to be mindful of one's unconscious sympathies and impulses, because they will govern the outcome of one's contextual exchange of meaning through interaction with one's non-consensuality. This pattern likewise is reflected in the manifestation of one's shadow self through the subjective components of one's observations of the other. Underlying both manifestations is the all-in-all principle through which some limited degree of God-consciousness animates us all, some unity, which often can only be interpreted through the higher-level expressions we give off in the moment of conversation. In this episode, we will be talking about the nature of the different levels of spatial multiplicity. Going back to the complete series, we talked about how there are five spatial plates being the plate of spatial location, the plate of the face, hands, voice and posture. Each of these plates was understood to present a different narrative. I would like to explain with this podcast the nature of the layers of multiplicity inherent to the spatial plates. To begin, the narratives expressed spatially by the body are layers which provide meaning to the expressive language we produce. The highest of these layers, expressed by the plate of the face, eyes, ears is that of pure affirmation its expression manifests in an affirmatory response to our intersubjective involvement with others. In these narratives, our expressed language generates an affirmatory response to our impulses and the impulses inculcated by others. In other words, at this level, we affirm our own responses to others' narratives, while acting physically upon those narratives spatially. The next level, which manifests through the expressed language of the voice, represents dissonant affirmation. Which is to say that the narratives expressed represent an affirmatory response internally to the narratives of others, while action upon them is met with negation. This produces a kind of dissonant consensuality, wherein our experience of the other is bifurcated. The next level is the plate of posture, which corresponds to dissonant negation. In this, the internal narratives of the other are negated both internally and in practice, producing a dissonant consensuality where those impulses are expressed. Finally, the last level is that of our non-consensual narratives, expressed through the plate of the hands. These are the reactive dialectical emotionality of the other in response to our internal negating narratives. This manifests as multiplicity in the expressed hand language of the other. Now, each of these layers is complete, in that, it represents a complete overlay upon our experience of the other. It just becomes focused, so to speak in the expressive language of the speaker through our direct interplay with them. Let me give you an example. Suppose you are seated in a living room talking to a friend. You observe her hand language, expressive of your non-consensual narratives, that is reactive responses to your emotionality, her posture, Expressive of some dissonant consensuality of negation of both your thoughts and action, her voice, expressive of some affirmational dissonant consensuality, her posture, expressive of dissonant negation, producing a dissonant consensuality, and her face, expressive of some affirmational narrative with respect to your thoughts and action. Each of these narratives represents a distinct narrative intersection between your thoughts and her expressive action. The expressive level of the meaning simply a reflection of whether you have negated or affirmed a particular impulse. This is a cross sectional description of the spatial plates of multiplicity expressed through another. In this episode, we will be answering the question why is that sometimes others' expressive language reflects a state of emotional balance and other times it expresses multiplicity? The answer is made clear by our previous writings about the tonic dominant relationship. In the tonic-dominant relationship, a tonic-paired individual is emotionally balanced. That is, they exist in a stable state of emotional tension. In their expressive action, their body mechanics are syntactically reflective of their verbal speech. There is a nesting, an embedding of their conscious expression in their unconscious body mechanics. The dominant on the other hand exists in a state where their emotional homeostasis is subordinate to the emotional stable state of the tonic. That is to say, they exhibit postural releases and deference in response to the rising of tension in the tonic, resulting in a release for the tonic. When an individual who is dominant expresses meaning, they have to directly balance their emotional state through reactive emotionality. This leads to each level of the body mechanics, Expressed meaning of the dominant, exhibiting a dialectical reaction to the unconscious and conscious thought processes of some other. In this cross section, their hand language will exhibit dialectical meaning to the non consensual narratives of some other, that is, their pre conscious and barely conscious thought stream of the preceding cycle. Let me give you an example. Suppose you spent the last night thinking about some minor decision of the municipal government in your area. You encounter another interested party. You have an everyday contextual conversation through your verbal expressions. But the other's hand language expresses a narrative which finds its root in a dialectical approach to the municipal issue. That is, if the language were understood to be spoken, it would reflect a dialectical response to your thoughts of the night before. Let's go to the next level. Suppose you also spent last night thinking about whether you would go to coffee with some friend tomorrow. You consciously decided not to go and took steps the following day to negate that intention. You then encounter the same individual from our municipal issue example. Their posture follows part and parcel with an affirmatory narrative, that is, if part of a spoken sequence would reflect the consistent body mechanics of someone expressing an affirmatory response to the impulse you negated to meet the friend for coffee. Because it is a negated choice, upon which action was taken to negate, its response manifests through the posture of the other. Let's suppose also that you thought about going grocery shopping tomorrow, yesterday. Let's suppose that you affirmed that choice internally, but then didn't follow through. You encounter some other whose voice expresses multiple meanings. The bifurcation of meaning produces two narratives, one the contextual, and the second, an affirming narrative with respect to your intention to go grocery shopping. Finally. Last night, you also thought about whether you should go to a concert in the coming weeks. You affirm the decision and purchase a ticket. You encounter some other, whose facial expressions represent dual meanings, one of which is contextual, and the second, part of an affirming narrative with respect to whether you should attend the concert. Now, there are two forms of dissonant consensuality then there are dissonant consensualities created by narratives that we internally affirm but don't act upon. Second, there are dissonant consensualities created by narratives we negate both internally and externally. All of this is to say, that the spatial plates can be understood to reflect different levels of our preconscious and conscious thoughts from a time proximate to the encounter, which will be multiplicitous to the degree our conversation partner is emotionally unbalanced, That is, not the tonic. In this episode, we will be talking about how the plates of meaning manifest spatially. In the last episode, we talked about how each level of the spatial plates manifests different kinds of narratives in an exchange between two individuals, with there being a division between internal and external, acted upon, narratives. That is to say, that the facial plate of the other represents multiplicity defined by narratives which they affirm for us which correspond to those which we affirmed internally and acted on externally. At the other end of the spectrum is the plate of the hands, which expresses reactive emotionality defined as our non-consensual, that is, unconscious, impulses of our shadow self, which we neither negate nor express. Between them are the plate of posture, which entails multiplicity corresponding to narratives which are internally affirmed but negated externally. And, the plate of the voice, which corresponds to narratives which are affirmed internally but not acted upon. Now, each of these distinct levels represents a distinct plate corresponding to a distinct experience of the world around us. The way it was phrased was, that in an exchange between two people, the plates are, focused, so to speak in the actions of another. That is to say, each level represents a distinct universe, a distinct experience of reality, which corresponds to a distinct actuality. To put it another way, on the plate of the face, you may go about your day, and may have spontaneous impulses to engage with those around you in an intimate fashion. On this plate, such behavior might be met with affirmation, because the conventionality of this plate is distinct from the one you commonly inhabit or, on the plate of the hands, you may be met with dialectical responses to your internal thoughts of the night before. You may be upbraided for some thoughts which you didn't even know you consciously had, in actuality. The point is, that people, are gateways, intersection points, between the many worlds described by multiplicity. They represent the nexus points between many universes, and can exhibit meaning according to all four. The nature of the narratives expressed on each of the plates represents a full and complete world in and of itself, which we only glimpse a part of during a common everyday exchange. Thus, when we describe the five spatial plates, being four as described above, and the plate of spatial location, within which the four are nested, we are talking about a stratification of experience, parallel realities, which find their expression through our unconscious actions, in an everyday exchange between two people. That being said, there are also the four supraspatial plates, which correspond to the emotional content of our experience. These are the emotional, archetypal, symbolic and esoteric. They describe the basic vocabulary of an exchange, with the ascending quality being one of unity between all consciousnesses. That is why, when you inhibit an impulse, when that impulse is characterized by an archetypal alignment, it is appropriated by another, sharing that archetype, as opposed expressed through a dissonant consensuality. Now, likewise, every inhibited impulse generates a dissonant consensuality where it is expressed. This means that the various plates are also classified according to whether the unconscious actions of another affirm or negate our impulses. The non-consensual narratives of the plate of the hands produces negation, because the reactive emotionality of the other negates rather than affirms. But, the plates of the face, voice and posture, all generate dissonant consensualities where the impulses are expressed. This means, that in practice, every time you meet another, a kind of bubble extends outward from their action, arising out of the execution of the affirmed impulse. It is rather as if people are lenses into distinct universes, which we can perceive only to the extent that we allow our action to be accelerated through them. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment and subscribe.